right. Um, today, um, I wanted to, to talk about membership, um, but I wanted to even start off a little bit unconventionally and ask you a question, um, two questions actually. And so uh, my first question for you is, why did you come to church today? Okay. It may sound like a very kind of rhetorical question, just like because I want to, because I woke up and I'm supposed to. Um, but I want you to think about it. It's, it's a genuine question that I have. I'm not trying to be facetious. Like, I want us to have an intentional answer, every single person, right? Like, why did you come to church today? Question one. Question two is, why this church in particular? Okay. Um, this is so unconventional. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to a minute to think about it. I want you to have like a thoughtful response. Whatever comes to mind, don't feel like if you don't have a response, you know, it's okay. But I want you to think about it. Just take 30 seconds. Think about it. If you want to write it down, why did you come to church today? Why this church in particular? Okay. All right. Very different from your typical sermon, right? It's a little interactive. Um, it's all good. So, uh, I would say our expectations of church come from each of our backgrounds from church. Uh, churches we've been to, churches we grew up in, and the experiences that we have of church are, are brought into kind of the next church we, we, we go to, okay? Um, and I would say those expectations, though, though those are very personal to us, right? Uh, I want us to understand that God, who designed and established his church, has his own purposes from his word, and we're going to look into that today, okay? Um, we have four sections we're going to be covering the first one is the identity and the mission of the church. The second one is our participation in the church. The third section will be on the structure of the local church. And the fourth one will be the practices of the local church. Um, I will for sure go over the section titles when we get there, so don't feel like you missed out. Four sections, identity and mission, participation, structure, and practices. Okay. Um, let's start off with the identity of the church, right? So I want us to zoom out a little bit. Let's set some context. So not talking about this church anymore. We're going to be talking about God's church, the church, his church, right? And what our identity and our relationship with God is, okay? Uh, we're going to start from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to through 5. And this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Um, Ephesians 1 has a whole long list where Paul goes on this super run-on sentence of all the spiritual blessings, right, for God's people. And how these Gentiles, these non-Jews specifically are blessed by God. All these amazing truths, and I don't have the time to go through every single one of them. I'll summarize it a bit, right? But that's kind of like a whole separate sermon. Um, but he continues on to go into chapter 2. And so he transitions them to remind them of where they came from and how God had saved them by his grace, okay? So, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 6. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you were once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the Gentiles, which includes us, the non-Jews, we were once spiritual outsiders, right? Not part of God's people. But now we are included with the Jews, right? And so together, right, we make the one true body of Christ. Let's continue on in verses 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to go to verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. We're going to go to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Christ's sacrifice and his blood reconciles us to God and to one another as well, right? And I want us to just, in summary, look at the contrast that Paul is highlighting for us, okay? What God has done for us as his people, right? We were spiritually eternally dead, and now we are made eternally alive. We were once enslaved to sin and now we are saved by grace. We were once aliens, and now we are citizens of heaven. We were once separated from him, but now we are brought near. We were once hostile enemies, children of wrath, but now we are chosen and adopted into his family as members of his household. Okay? 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the identity of the church is that it's God's united people, who have trusted in the gospel, right? Trusted that it's Jesus' death and resurrection was this perfect personal sacrifice made, paid for our eternal condemnation, the sins that we've committed, our transgressions, right? And if you are part of that people, you have received salvation, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification, and every spiritual blessing that he had predestined for those who trust in him. And now, God's people are unified as one body, where Christ is the head. Okay, we're going to read Ephesians 1, 22 to 23. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. So the concept I wanted to introduce us today is we have the church, which we can also call the universal church. And what that means is that it's every believer who believes in Yahweh or Jesus as Savior from every point in time in every place on earth, they make up the universal church, the universal body of Christ. Okay? The mission of the church. So what's the church's mission and purpose? Um, maybe you've heard of the Great Commission, so we're going to turn there in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So our mission, I think, is very clear. If you've been around the church a bit, you know it is to make disciples, um, to baptize them, to teach them, to observe all of God's commandments, right? Um, so as we make disciples, as we baptize, as we teach people to observe Jesus' commandments, as we do the same for ourselves, right, there's actually a parallel purpose that is happening, which is that the body of Christ is growing in maturity by building itself up in love, right? Jason read that passage as, you, as we open service today. Hopefully you're here for it, but we're going to go over it right now as well, right? So the body of Christ grows immaturity by building itself up in love. This comes from Ephesians 4. A little bit of just context on this is that Paul begins at this point, we talked about being one people uh, of what God has done, right, through the gospel. And so to describe the unity for these believers, furthermore, he mentions that we are one people under one God, under one faith, under one baptism, right? And so that Jesus gave the leaders, sorry, gave leaders and gifts to the body of Christ. We're going to turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I'm going to read it for us. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we're going to go over later about how each part of the body is equipped and working properly. But as we make disciples, I want us to see this is the larger context and goal of building up the body of Christ, right? Um, we want believers to mature to the fullness of, of Christ. And that the disciple making that we do, the teaching that we do, the observing that we do is going to be taking place in the church. Okay? We're going to look at this image that Jason helped us put together. Um, simple visual. I just wanted to point out Christ is the head of the church. Right? The blue box is the universal church. Right? He's the head over all. We are the, his, his body. Right? And there's actually local churches that make up 
the universal church, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll look at this more so we can keep, kind of keep it up there for now. Um, let's talk about our participation in the church as God's people, our participation in the church. So we know the identity of the church, the mission of the church. How do we then practice and participate being the church? As the image shows that being part of the universal church, the universal body, is that we have to live this out, this universal reality in local contexts, okay? Local bodies, local churches. So the who in the church, so who the people are and what the people are doing in a local church is what we call local church membership, okay? Members of a local body are now joined together to fulfill the church's identity and mission that Jesus gave. So a good question I think many of us are thinking is that why does it have to be a local church? Could it not be a universal aspect of it? Can we not approach it from a universal view? Where in the Bible does the concept of members or membership come from? Is it biblical? Very good questions. Let's answer them, okay? So I want to first talk about this, this term membership. I think we have certain associations that we come into church or this church or any other church and be like, ooh, membership. I know membership, okay? Um, <clears throat> every January, there's this surge. People sign up for this membership. What are they signing up for? A gym membership, yes. I have given up all hope. I will not sign up for one. I, I know myself. Um, but for gym memberships, right, uh, much like how there are memberships for Amazon Prime or Costco, right, we shop around and we evaluate, right, are the perks worth it, right? Am I required to pay for that? If so, is it really worth what I'm getting? Memberships are also based upon today in a subscription model, right? So many of us probably have more subscriptions than we know. And part of the nice things about them is that we can cancel any time. There's no commitment necessary. It's easy in, it's easy out. Um, I would say for many of us, right, like we want to we try it out, right? There's usually a free trial. And we will kind of go and surf the net to, to see like what, what deals are there to extend my free trial because I want to just try to milk it, right? Other memberships we're a part of, kind of like Starbucks and Disneyland, Chick-fil-A, right? There's a status, right? Are you a gold, you're a silver, you're a bronze? I think Chick-fil-A is like red, right? More perks when I have and achieve a certain level of membership and status, right? I would say none of these relate to how the Bible describes membership. So I just wanted to call those things out, right? So here's the definition of local church membership. Local church membership is a covenant, meaning it's an agreement, it's a promise. It's a living and active commitment between the local church and a Christian. Okay, I'll repeat it one more time. A covenant, meaning it's an agreement or promise where it's a living and active commitment between a local church and a Christian. So what is the agreement exactly? Okay, The local church is then affirming that believer's profession of faith in Christ and promises that they will oversee that believer's discipleship and the Christian in return will promise and agree to faithfully gather, to worship, to fellowship, to give, to serve and submit to that local body. Okay, So is local church membership biblical? Well, I would say in the Bible, we're not going to find a certain passage heading 
that says instructions for establishing a proper church membership program. Okay? It's not explicitly called out in that way. But if we look through the scriptures, we see that a few factors. One, churches in the New Testament have always gathered in local contexts. Right? The churches, uh, the letters to the churches that were written were for those local communities to gather because those were specific for what they were going through. In the Greek, uh, the, the, the church was called the ecclesia, the assembly of those who are called out, the gathering of God's people. And so these gatherings, the purpose was for to worship corporately. And so in the, throughout the scriptures, there are many examples of commanding us, God's command to gather together and to do a lot of these what we call one another's. Okay? There are 47 different one another verses in the New Testament that is instructed for Jesus' followers to then apply. I'm just going to just machine gun them off, okay, because they're all over Scripture, and I'm just going to throw them out there, okay? Regarding unity, be at peace with one another, gently, patiently tolerate one another, bear with one another, and forgive one another, confess your sins to one another. Regarding love, love one another. There's about seven different references. I'm not going to read them off. Humility, regard one another as more important than yourselves, serve one another, wash one another's feet, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another, Bear one another's burdens, speak the truth in love, encourage and build up one another, pray for one another, even more so. I just pulled out some because I don't want to go forever, right? So by grace, through faith, we're all part of the global and universal body of Christ, but the nature of Christian living is that it has to take place in a local community, right? So we're putting the reality of being the body now into action in our lives. Secondly, membership, this term that churches use, comes from a description from 1 Corinthians 12. So we're going to turn there in a second. A little bit of context, right? So Paul wrote this letter. He's writing to the Corinthians. Jeremy kind of talked about it last week. The Corinthian church was going through a lot of church problems. They had a lot of questions, and they had even some conflicts, and Paul's responding to them, right? They were a very gifted group of believers, but at the same time, they're rather spiritually immature. So the tone of the letter is corrective. One point is that the spiritual gifting is abundant, but that does not equate to spiritual maturity. And so what we're going to look at in this passage, 1 Corinthians 12, is Paul addressing questions about the spiritual gifts, but there's some principles here I want us to understand about the local body and from this metaphor that applies to today's sermon. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. For just as one... Sorry. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So believers make up the human body, metaphorically. Um, Paul is describing a single living organism made up of many separate parts or members, right? Christ being the head, we are the body body parts. And so what that means is that all kinds of people are, are coming to churches, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different social circles, different social statuses. Um, but what they have in common is that they're united under one spirit, one identity, and one purpose. Let's go on to verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the, sh- if the, the, 
If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul's describing this intentional arrangement by God, right? The body's purpose is to display the diversity of believers, but in unity. It's not uniformity, okay? It's not a uniformity of people and gifts. People are different intentionally, right? Each member functions distinctly from others. We are not meant to be exactly the same. We all are called to a single purpose. And so as we as believers or as believers in this world are called to a local body, we're not, the point is not to find a local body that's much like us, okay? I think that's a temptation that is very, very natural and very, very common. I want to fit in. I want to be comfortable. So I want to look for people that are like me, okay? But that is not the value here. That's not the principle here, okay? Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there, may, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one mem- member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Right? Each part of the body is critically dependent upon the other parts. And I would say that's kind of the same with our own physical bodies, right? Like whenever, I don't know, we have a backache, you know, um, we just think about that's, that's the problem. That's where I'm hurting. Right? Everything else is fine, but like that one thing is just all I can think about. In the body of Christ, there's a mutual dependence. And so that we are accountable, we are responsible to one another. Right? If there are missing or improperly functioning members of our body, that's going to cause strain on the rest of the parts of the body. Right? You've got to offset it. If there's a member a body part that is separated, literally separated, not part of the body, right? It's likely that it's, there, there is no life there. It's likely that it cannot grow. It cannot gain nourishment. It would not survive very long on its own. And so members are either going to be part of the body or they're not part of the body, right? There's not really a healthy and considerable in-between, Okay? Uh, members that are not functioning to build up the rest of the body are not supporting the health of the whole organism. It's straining on the body, and it could be considered cancerous. So Paul's saying, even though that there are weaker uh, parts, right, um, God holds the value that greater honor is reserved and given to those members. They are equally valuable 
and that there's no division. The same care should happen whether it seems like a weaker or stronger member, right? Every member cares for every member the same way. So this sounds super idealistic, right? But I would say this is what God values. So then are we aligned to this? It's natural to think that the stronger, more important parts of the body, you know, the ones that are upfront and more visible, right, uh, that are used more often even, right, those body parts, those certain members are more valuable than others, right? But that's not how God values each member. One member suffers, all suffer. One is honored, all rejoice. And so the outcome is shared. It's not an individual's outcome. It's not just a group of members' outcome, right? The health and status of one part affects the whole. So we know that the Bible describes Christians gathered locally, and that so there's local bodies, as we saw in the first image, right? Many members are part of each of those local bodies. They are to care for one another. They are to uphold their unity in diversity. Okay, but how do we carry that out? How is that practiced? What does membership in the local church actually look like day to day, week by week? Okay, so we're gonna t- go from our first image of the universal church local church. We're gonna zoom in into one of these local churches, okay? So we want to cover the structure now of the local church. And so the structure, what we see on the left, is the different roles and types of people, and on the right are practices where some of those roles will participate in. Okay. So between the people and the practices, this is what a structure of the local church looks like according to what we see in the Bible and what we try to follow here at Savior. We have overseers, uh, we have deacons, we have members, we have visitors. Visitors may be believers, they may be non-believers. But I want to talk about some of these these roles here, okay? Um, Overseers, elders, uh, they're interchangeable names, um, office titles. But another way, this is also pastors, which is translated to shepherd teachers, okay? So they're all interchangeable, okay? Yes, uh, we have a, a paid staff paid pastor staff, and that is Rand. Um, But just to clarify, right, according to the Bible, uh, we have four overseers, and therefore, that's also equate to four pastors, okay, four shepherds, four elders. All right, so the the office of an overseer is a leadership role in the local body, and I am not going to go and cover all of what it means to be an overseer, uh, even the qualifications of it. We have a full series on 1 Timothy, that is a guide on church leadership. So that is where you will have the complete source. Um, in that series as well, there's deacons, uh, where, where Rand teaches on that. And so I'll just say that the difference between overseers and deacons while we're here, right, is as a spoiler difference, is that deacons are lead servants that focus on the services that are provided by the church. And overseers, I will go over in terms of some of those responsibilities now, okay? So the relationship between the overseers and members, then, is that the overseers are responsible for the spiritual health and for the maturity of members through teaching, rulership, and being an example, okay? The responsibility of overseers is, to, is that they are responsible for the spiritual health and maturity of members 
through teaching, rulership, and being an example. Okay, we're going to turn to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to them humble. So, who is the flock in this sense, right? Peter's describing the flock. Who is the flock? Elders of the shepherds, but who is the flock? Who do the elders or overseers, know who they should be focusing on. Is it anyone? Is it anyone on any given Sunday? Any given DG night? Right? Um, A quick illustration, I would say, is as a dad of three, I know my kids, right? I know who they are because I I name them. They are my offspring. Uh, But not only do I just know who they are, right? I know their needs, I know the personalities, I know the weaknesses, at least, you know, up to four years or less of, of it. Yeah, it's more to see, right? I know what encourages them, I know what frustrates them, I know what, you know, pushes their buttons and what I should not be doing as a father as well. Um, and so I would say, as their father, it's, it's correct, it is proper that I prioritize their needs, my care for them, over any other kids outside my family, okay? I, I care about everyone else's kids, right? But they are my kids, okay? So when elders know who their members are, right, they can be properly cared for. if there is not a clear understanding of who is part of that family, who is part of that membership, right, then the elders can't effectively care for those that want to be cared for and need to be cared for because it's just everyone and anyone that walks in and walks out. Members, the call for all of us, for all of you, is to, that you are to be subject and submit to the elders. This is God's plan for you, right, that God has gifted you in the church under shepherds. There's these teachers. They are examples to you for your spiritual growth. And so you are not alone. Okay? You are not wandering through your struggles, a lost sheep just trying to find a way back home. So if you're not a member here or at another church, I do want to ask, so who do you look to as an example? Who is accountable to provide oversight for your life and to shepherd you? Is it anyone? Is your expectation of the pastor like me that maybe I've known you through a lunch conversation or maybe I don't? 
Um, Peter talks about the chief shepherd. Just wanted to point out that is Jesus, right? And just to bring it all together, Jesus is the head of the universal church, and therefore he is also the head of every local church, not the overseers, right? We are the under shepherds. He is the chief shepherd that we submit to, the elders submit to. Um, if we want to put up the the last image real quick, um, th- there's a there's a group called visitors slash non-believers, right? And every church will have them. That is God's intention, right? Uh, the thing about just squiggly lines and connections and flows and stuff is, let's not overanalyze it, right? Um, the point is that they will participate in some of these practices that we'll kind of go over, right? It's just that they are not expected to practice them regularly and faithfully in the same way as members are because members are intentionally committing to these things, and they're committing to be held accountable to these things, right? And the reason why visitors may not be equivalent to a member is because maybe they're still evaluating where they're at in their faith, right? Maybe they're still trying to figure out if they understand what it means to practice gathering in corporate worship, understanding what it means to fellowship with other believers. Another reason why people are still considered just a visitor is because they have not, as I mentioned, covenanted committed to the body, to say that they want to invite others to commit to them as they commit to the body, okay? And I would say this, for visitors, it's okay. It takes time. It will require some teaching, that's for sure. But one thing it definitely takes is experience, experiencing what it's like, at least part of experiencing what membership is like, right? Of what it means part of a local body. What I mean by that is that, at least here, we have this general rule of our visitors who come out. We want them to be around us for about a season on Sundays and for our weekly DGs during weeknights, right? Um, The intention behind that is that it's in the best interest for that individual and for our church members as well to understand where are they at, right, in terms of their understanding of saying, yes, I want to commit here. I want to grow in faith here. This is my desire. Our core requirements, not to create this whole like legalistic system of just like, are you in? Are you super, super in? You know, um, our core requirements is that we want to make sure that someone who becomes a member here is a Christian to the best of our assessments and that they are committed to this local body. And so that season of kind of checking us out, being around us, being faithful, right, is trying to align to that value of showing commitment and saying, yeah, that is true of my heart. So we have the structure of the biblical local church that we see, um, but how this can be practiced will kind of vary per church. You go down the street, there will be some variance, right? Um, How we execute this kind of church by church will change across countries, across time periods, and that's okay, all right, as long as we are following it biblically. Right? Because today we have more access to, to technology, to more efficient tools of how we kind of track and follow up with people. Right? Like, there was no instant messaging back in the early church. Right? Um, and you know, like, compared to even like, the underground church in China, right? it is safe here in America to have a public identity for ministry. Right? We're not in danger, at least not yet. Right? Another thing to consider is for, for the size of a church, Membership could kind of look a little bit different. There's more planning and coordination and communication for even a church our size of 120 right now. 
And so if you're in a smaller church than that, there's a lot less that you have to do in terms of like processes and formalities in order to provide care for all the members. All right, so we looked at the structure of the local church. We talked about the different people, roles, the relationships between them. Uh, we're going to zoom in on the practices now, okay? Um, so there are eight practices that we see in, in Scripture, and we're going to go through them, and I know it seems like, oh my gosh, eight points. Rather short. Key word is rather. All right, first one, um, I want to say uh, for, for each of the practices I'll be going over, I'm going to give a benefit, Okay. For each practice, there will be a benefit. Um, the practices that we have are reflecting the commands God has for his people, for them to live out in the local church, right? First one is to believe, to believe in sound doctrine. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so our deepest belief or trust needs to be grounded in Scripture, right? It's our foundation and basis for truth to know who is God, what is sin, how can I be saved, what should a Christian do in this circumstance, in this scenario, in this decision. It has to be grounded in Scripture. It has to be grounded in sound doctrine. Um, our primary doctrines are on our website. Uh, they are the essential truths we believe in order for you to have saving faith as a Christian, saveyourcommunity.com slash beliefs, you just click. We also have our secondary doctrines, uh, which are non-essential beliefs uh, to saving faith, but they're essential for your understanding as far as your lifestyle as a Christian, your decisions, your perspective as a Christian, your worldview. The benefit of believing in sound doctrine is that you, as a member, are affirmed and recognized as a believer who holds to the same core beliefs and values as those also in membership. Okay? You're aligned. You're affirmed. Second practice is worshiping God personally in reading God's word and in prayer. Okay? Psalm, 19, uh, Psalm 119 Verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up in your word, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The benefits for worshiping God in reading and in prayer, your personal worship, is that you can then best honor God by obeying his word when you read it, right? And that you can pray for the spirit to help you walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Benefit three is gathering with the saints regularly. This could be Sunday gatherings. This could be midweek. It could be a non-formal uh, meeting. But you're meeting with God's people, with the saints, right? Colossians 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so the benefit when we gather with the saints is that we are encouraged when we gather corporately to worship God. We are encouraged when we hear his word preached so that we can be better equipped when we leave and we're scattered. Okay, we are gathered, we are encouraged through corporate worship and preaching, and then when we are scattered, we are better equipped to live out the gospel, to live out God's word. Benefit four, sorry, practice four, is giving to the body to meet the needs of the saints for the ministry. Giving to the body to meet the needs of the saints for ministry. Second Corinthians 9, 7, and verse 12 as well. So each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The benefit of giving to the body is that you're meeting the needs of the saints, meaning that the gospel can go forth in more opportunities through members' giving, right? Uh, new ways to connect with the world, uh, to spread the message. It also, another second, second benefit, is that benefit is that it grows us to be a generous people, right? Not moralistically generous, but the generosity through our giving is displaying how generous God is. God is a generous God. Our giving reflects him. And so others would see how generous God is, and they would thank him and glorify him. Um, practice five is fellowshipping with God's people. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means communion or having deep community with other believers. Deep community, Okay. In fellowship is where confession, accountability, prayer, reconciliation and relationships, and loving others in the body takes place. A lot is happening in fellowship. A lot is happening. Okay? Um, and I would say that Christian fellowship is not like anything else that you would find in the world. Okay? We're going to go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 12. And I'm going to go over and reference a bit of what Paul was, was, was talking about and connected back to fellowship, right? Um, verse 21 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow with greater honor. Jumping into verse 24. So which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so Paul is emphasizing here that there is a necessity for unity and reconciliation in every local body, right? Even here in our church, 
That is a necessity. It will be an ongoing necessity, right? In our flesh, in our sinfulness, we want others to just be like us, right? And when they're not like us, we respond in the same way. I have no need of that person. What do they have to really offer me? I can gladly exist without you, right? I tried many times before to reconcile, but it is what it is. I think we just go our separate ways, right? And so though we may say and we believe that we are very inclusive people and loving to all, right, when conflict arises, we are tested. And we believe the idea of it's easier, it's better, it's more convenient, it's more comfortable if I just remove myself. I'm just not, not going to go. Or you know what? I don't want them to be there. If they're there, I'm going to tell someone that I'm not comfortable with that. All right? This is a lie that is either coming from our flesh, from the enemy, right? It's intentionally to sow disunity. As Christ has reconciled us to God, we are also be reconciled to one another, right? But not only that, right? The bigger picture is that we are adopted into God's family, right? The, the dynamics of, of a family can often be very complicated, right? It can be very challenging because of the amount of intimacy, the amount of interactions, our frequency of, of, of seeing each other, living together, right? The more time we spend with people, the more interactions we have, the more familiar we, we feel, and then our unsanctified parts of us, right, come out, and sin is bound to overflow, and then, you know, we will sin against one another. The local church, which is a gathering of people of different personalities, different struggles with sins, Right? It's absolutely going to be a complicated and messy place. Right? It's not the first time we said it from the pulpit. The local church is a complicated and messy place. But God is fully aware. If we go back to verse 24, it says, He composed the body. He composed the body. He's aware of it. Right? Yet God believes that we can fellowship honorably in our complicated messiness with no division and care for one another. How we go about that really depends if we're examining ourselves, if we are coming to him, if we are coming to other people in humility, in forgiveness, in confession, in repentance. Are we doing those things? The benefit of fellowship is that we can live out God's one another commands the whole list that I did not even list off, okay? We can live out God's one another commands and experience that belonging and that spiritual growth he intended for us in the local church, okay? Practice six, evangelizing to the lost. We are to evangelize by representing Jesus, yes, in how we communicate the, the gospel in words, in our speech, but also in our thoughts, also in our actions, right? All of us is being renewed and transformed to our new self. John 13, verses 34, 34, 35 says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the benefit of this practice of evangelizing the lost is that we get to partner with others in obeying the Great Commission, locally, in our community around us. Also, as we gather together 
at local church, we can partner with overseas workers, okay? A second benefit of evangelizing to the lost in your local church is that you now have a collective witness, a collective testimony that God's love permeates through the diversity of the body and it covers a multitude of sins. Practice seven, submit to godly leaders. By the way, there is no order to this. There are just eight different things, hence the circle, not a priority list. Um, submit to godly leaders. So godly leaders, their, their, their purpose right, is to lead and guide you to be more like Christ. Right? To sum it all up. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As though as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The benefit of submitting to God of leaders is that you receive spiritual oversights from a leader when they are responsible to care for you in various ways, okay? How can they care for you? Through prayer, through teaching, through counsel, through encouragement, through protection from physical or spiritual harm, in the church, correction, or church discipline when necessary. Okay, all those ways are how a leader can care for a member. Um, This is a side note, but a very, very important one in the local church is where church discipline takes place. Um, It's amongst believers, and This actually fits as well in the fellowship section. It's not just purely in the leaders section, okay? But they're they're both, okay? Um, So what does it look like? Church discipline comes through teaching for prevention, okay? But also correction where it's needed, right? So in scripture, the purpose of disciplining members is that there's a restoration, right? to either repair or make them complete again, having the fellow believer to be corrected with gentleness, to restore them back to spiritual health, right? Um, that's what Galatians 6.1 tells us to do. But the big question in the local church is, who do, who do we discipline? Who can be disciplined? Who does the disciplining? Anyone? So in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about how principally how you would go about it, right? Um, If a brother sins against you, you need to go and tell them how they sin against you, right? Um, Knowing that it's a brother, right, I would say the most effective way of how to correct a brother is that you know who they are in terms of that they are a member because they have committed to be held accountable in the same way that you have. You've aligned in that way. It's the most effective this way, right? They have affirmed that they want that accountability. At least they did at one point, right? So Jesus goes on and says, right, if he doesn't listen, though, next step, we progress a bit more, right? Still showing as kind of as much um, concern and gentleness as possible, right? If this brother or sister does not listen, then you need to bring a couple more believers, members, and tell it to eventually tell it to the church, right, if they don't listen at all, okay? Um, so what Jesus is describing is that members should be kind of communicated and corrected to the extent that they are believers. But if they begin to reject correction to the point where 
that you're no longer living like a believer and they're actually more of a, like an unbeliever, that is where we recognize maybe they're not truly fulfilling their commitment as being held accountable, okay? And therefore, they're pretty much no longer considered a member in that way, at least in their value, right? So, um, there's another example in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 5 that I want to bring up that Paul communicates as far as church discipline, okay? This is the other most kind of clear example. In 1 Corinthians 5, um, there's a member in there who calls himself a believer, um, but he's very unrepentant, right? He's sleeping with his um, stepmom. And so Paul tells the church, tells the Corinthian church, you need to purge this evil person from among you, right? It sounds very harsh, does it not? Right? But his point is that we cannot allow unrepentant sin to remain in the church because the other members would see it as an example and use it to go on sinning for themselves. Right? And if members are not held accountable for their sin, what is the difference between a member and a non-member? A member and a non-believer. Their lifestyles are the same. Right? And so there's this exclusion for those who are blatantly unrepentant, and it's not just like you ask them one time and that's it, right? There's time involved, there's follow-up, okay? And exclusion is not the goal here, right? Inclusion, we want more people to come to the body of Christ, right? But exclusion is necessary at times in order to clarify who is living out their faith rightly and who is not as much as they're claiming to be, okay? Being... A member in good standing has actual value. The local church is affirming that you are walking and living rightly, living out your faith as you have professed. All right, and a side note, uh, last practice is to serve with your giftedness. Serve with your giftedness. So God has given every believer a spiritual gift. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 and verse 16 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and teachers, and shepherds, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building of the body of Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, right? A spiritual gift is anything that is some type of talent or skill in order for you to use it for others. It's for others, not for yourself, so that others can love God more, so that others are growing in their faith. That is the purpose of why God gave spiritual gifts to every believer, right? And you're not just using it however you choose, but you are being equipped to use it more effectively when you're part of the local church. And when you do so, you are then working properly, as Paul says here. Each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The benefit of serving with your unique gifts is that you are helping others love God more. You are building up the body, okay? So we went over the eight biblical practices in the local church that we see in Scripture, believing Worship, gathering, give, giving, fellowship, evangelize, submit, and serve. Um, summary there. 
Uh, I want to conclude now and just zoom out from, from the practices and go back to the local church. Right? I want to ask you, wh- where are you in this diagram? I know that you're physically here today, right? But in your heart, I want you to think about this, right? Like, in your conviction, where are you and where do you want to be? Is there a particular practice God is calling you to do more faithfully? Let's zoom out one more time, and now we're looking at the universal church, right? If you're a visitor, I wanted to share in the most loving way, right? Are are you at least in the universal church? Are you believing the gospel? And not that everyone who comes here is required to. Everyone's on their own journey to come and place their trust in Christ. But this is an invitation for you. I want to invite you to see God's love for you. And every person, right? God died for you so that you did not have to. God saves us from our sin when we repent and trust in him. And so my first question was, why did you come to church today? Right? Not to be, again, rhetorical. Um, yeah, in, in the most loving, caring way, I wanted to say, you know, wh- why did you come to this church in particular? Right? And I, I pray that if you are not a believer, that you come to the conclusion today that you need God, that you need the church, and it's where you belong, and it's where God can care for you, okay? <clears throat> for those of us who are believers, um, I think our understanding of membership should have changed, hopefully, <laughs> um, and we can do away with the secular de- definition of membership, right? It's not about this individualistic, American, non-committal kind of quit when it's getting too hard, I want to keep my options open, I want to cancel any time type of membership, right? It's biblical church membership where it's a covenant, it's an agreement, it's active, it's living, it's part of God's design of how there's a mutual ministry where as a member I am pouring into others as they are pouring into me, right? There's a spiritual benefit for me as an individual. There's a spiritual benefit for us as a church as a whole. Okay? Um, we're going to zoom back in to the local church. Are you a believer that is just around the local church, but just not integrated into one? Have you ever thought about, you know, why did God not just save people at the point of faith and then we just go straight to heaven, Right? And the reason is that he has a mission for us. He has an identity for us that's part of his body. And so my encouragement to you is to seek God's will, which is to be with his people, to have life upon life, to practice, to participate in the local body. And I understand that there's different reasons for for different people. That's the reality. Um, I want to speak to some of these things. Perhaps you are hesitating because you're scared or you're jaded or even traumatized by previous church relationships. Perhaps you just want to be independent and you want to live out your faith your way and you don't want to be held accountable or receive correction. It's possible. I would say that it's okay to acknowledge your shortcomings. We all have them, 
right? It's okay to acknowledge your struggles, but that is not what God wants you or where he wants you to stay, okay? He doesn't want you to struggle alone without the body to care for you, without oversight provided for you in the local church. So my question of why did you come today, you know, my prayer for you is that you come back next week, not because I told you to, um, but because it's your conviction that you understand that I need the church. I need to be a member of a local body because that's the means of how God cares for me, how God can grow me. So understand the benefits of being a member, right? These are benefits that you cannot provide for yourself. I will say that, okay? Are you a member in this body currently? There's at least 98 of you, at least on our roster. Um, Are you a member in this body that is just kind of existing? Perhaps you agree philosophically, theologically, like, yes, that is right. I'm part of the local church. I'm a member. I'm involved in a serving team, right? But there isn't this transformation of working out your salvation with others, right? There's this participation, but not quite really intentional with others? Are you consuming more than giving and sacrificing and loving others? Where's the gospel in that, right? Philippians 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our example, right? Are you around church to maybe seek your own approval of being religious enough? Are you seeking the approval of others? Perhaps a friend, a significant other, even a leader? What happens when you don't get what you're looking for? Maybe you currently feel like you're on the outside fringes where no one really knows what you're going through. But deep down, you truly want to be known and cared for. As you think back on why you came to church today, my prayer for you is that, again, yes, you you understand, I I need the local church. And as a member, this is what, what God's plan is for me in order for me to belong and grow with others as others are pouring into me and I am pouring into them, okay? Are you a member that's pursuing faithfulness to God? and to the body. There are many of you here, and I'm very thankful for that. Praise God. As a leader, I would say, if that's you, keep going. Keep praying. Keep dying to yourself. Keep carrying your cross. Keep pursuing Christ. Keep believing and trusting in sound doctrine. Keep worshiping the Lord and reading and praying. Keep gathering with the saints Keep giving to the work of the gospel ministry. Keep fellowshipping with God's people. Keep evangelizing to the lost. Keep submitting to God's leaders. Keep serving with your gifts. Keep going. We have a long way to go. Probably decades for many of us, okay? None of us in our, in our walks are going to be perfect. And as scripture says, there will be suffering of some sort for all believers, right? I want to point us to 
last passage, 2 Timothy 3, sorry, 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Our aim and our, our mission that's given to us, right, is to build up the body in order to please Jesus, our Savior. The approval we seek is his. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, This is you. My my prayer for you is that you walk away this week and your conviction is, I praise God. I praise God because he is good. And he's provided me with many blessings and gifts, faith, salvation, forgiveness and grace, the church, leaders, members, the gospel ministry within as we gather as a church, the ministry in the world as we are scattered out of here, in order that more people will come into the kingdom, in order for all of us to reach the fullness of the stature of Christ, and ultimately so Jesus will be glorified. I pray that you've been equipped on what is local church membership today. Um, It should not be only the leader that is trying to encourage believers to commit to local church, right? Every member should understand the value of it, God's design, God's intention. And so in this church, I would say, you know, God is good. There's so much amazing things that God has done in a little over, barely over three years as we have planted here, right? It's truly God's grace. People ask me, like, how's church going? Like, it's so hard, but God is working. God is changing people's lives. Um, people are growing, you know. And how come? I don't have an answer other than God is gracious. We're walked by faith. We trust that as we obey his commandments, as we obey the word and we live it out, that he's working in us. Okay? There's so much more still, though, right? He has done so much in just three years for us as a local body here. I can't imagine what else is to come in the future, right? What is our growth going to be looking like? Right? Our growth is to be growing into the head, who is Christ, in order for us to equip one another and build up the body. So, let's keep going. Till Jesus returns, or he calls any one of us home, right? Here in the love and power of Christ, we stand as members of both the local church and the universal church of Christ. Let's pray. God, we praise you because you are so good to us. That behind all of the programs and planning and events and groups and chats and all those things that we experience day to day, your heart is to provide for us, to lead us as our head. 
And so, God, we say thank you. Thank you for the blessings and the gifts, God, of the local church and local churches all around us as the means is how we are to belong as your people, how we are to grow, how we are to live and walk with each other life upon life. God, whether that is in this local church or some other place, God, I pray you would call us as your people to trust in your wisdom and trust in how you assemble and gather your people to live out your commandments so that you may be glorified, so the body may be growing and maturing to the fullness of Christ. Thank you for the mission. Thank you for our identity that you have saved us and saved us into this body. Thank you, God, that we don't just follow our own ideas and human design, God, but we trust your word and we follow you. And in that, God, help us to discern of how to care for one another because the local church is so messy and so complicated sometimes. But it's all in your sovereign plan. Thank you, God, for taking sinners, making us into saints who can be vessels to love and to be pouring out ourselves into one another as you pour into us. God, reveal to us your will. God, we thank you that we can gather here and I pray that you would be glorified as we leave from this place and you speak to us and you move us, God, to where we need to be with you and with your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.